Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. On this week's show, McSweeney's is doing a Kickstarter campaign. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it an embarrassing thing? Will you send them money? Megan Dom talks about one of her favorite writers, Bernard Cooper. We'll discuss why Los Angeles is the world's greatest Jewish city, and it's not because Lori Weiner lives here. Aw. Although that helps. You're so sweet. Joining me are Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, my co-hosts. Hi, guys. You're sweet enough. Sweet enough for what? McSweeney's, the very cool San Francisco publishing house founded by Dave Eggers, has uh, recently started a Kickstarter campaign that has raised over $88,000. And I'm wondering, Tom and Lori, how do we feel about McSweeney's wading into the, the Kickstarter waters? Whatever works. I mean, what are you saying, that you think it looks bad for publishing, that they have to resort to that? I'm not saying it looks bad. I have no brief for characterizing their behavior, but what I'm saying, let me reframe the question. What do we think of a publishing climate where something as well-regarded as McSweeney's is going on Kickstarter? Well, it is a a nonprofit, and it can take donations. It's not making enough money to do it in the in the traditional way. That's I mean that's the one thing that we know for sure, right? So you're saying capitalism is destroying our culture. Well, I think that it's one of the impacts of the new publishing environment aka what Amazon has wrought in the publishing industry. The big publishers in New York are apparently doing fine. That is, they're at 10% profit, back up after the recession to 10% profit. It's in part, some people would claim, by squeezing authors, uh, by limiting advances, by cutting corners of various other kinds in order to meet Amazon's you know, demands. Making um, those devil deals. Right. But should we be surprised by this? Maybe not. Lots of publishers have lost money over the years, and lots of the publishers of the books that we like the most Literary publishing is not a high-profit endeavor. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Poetry publishers have long been subvented. But it struck me as a little scary that good literary publishing needs public support. Well, I mean, if you look at the traditional model where, you know, Random House or Knopf would publish Khalil Gibran and they would make millions and millions of dollars every year and then they would use that money to publish a poet. But McSweeney's isn't publishing Khalil Gibran. They're not publishing huge bestsellers, are they? Well, they're publishing Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers is a, a good seller. He's a good Obviously, seller, but he's not the a, kind of seller that can that can, can that can support dozens of other titles. It's not like he's writing the you know Harry Potter series, no. right? And that's why Scholastic is number ten on the international list of publishers making the most money because of Harry Potter. I mean, that's the model that has always worked. And when you have a house like McSweeney's that's picking and choosing much more carefully, that model is not going to to work. Explain. Tom or Lori, how does McSweeney's model differ from the LARB model? Because we're reader-supported. We are a nonprofit. I guess they don't consider themselves reader-supported, although they are nonprofit. Is that the only difference? I guess every publisher is reader-supported. Sure, right? I mean, in some only, way. Only readers are going to right. support <laughs> what they're doing. But we're not selling a product, right? We give our product away. Right. Um, and McSweeney's is a traditional publisher in that they are selling a product. They're selling their books, and they're selling them supposedly at a price where they can afford to publish them, uh, but not quite. Do you think a time would ever come when we would stop giving our product away for free? No. Never. No, I don't, I don't, I don't see, no, I don't. 
I think we're we're a public service. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And it's like saying, is KPFK going to start charging people to listen to the radio? Or, you know, no. We could afford better microphones if they did. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Is the, the Kickstarter campaign by the literary entity, this is the wave of the future, will everybody be doing this? Well, Red Hen Press is a nonprofit that mm-hmm. has a lot of fundraising strategies that help it stay alive. Um, these are presses that rely on some level of charitable giving to and stay is, alive. And is yes. McSweeney's the highest visibility entity to engage in this kind of thing in the literary world? The news item struck me because I think of McSweeney's as a very successful and fairly large in the small indie world, fairly large publisher. Well, it's a sign of something larger in the culture as well, because the whole crowdfunding phenomenon is fascinating. You see it in movie making, where a guy like, oh, sure. like Zach Braff, who was the star of a very successful sitcom called Scrubs and is presumably a fairly wealthy guy, did a Kickstarter campaign to fund one of his movies. And I, I saw that and thought, geez, if Zach Braff is going on Kickstarter, what's to stop uh, Eli Brode? <laughs> well, and, and rock stars have been doing it for years now too, right? Funding their next album. Who's been, who's been doing it on? Well, Jill Sobule did it, I think. Yeah, right. Our friend Jill Sobule did a, a, a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign. Have you given money to any Kickstarter campaigns? That is a really good question. I have. I have a friend who is an actor who doesn't have a lot of money who was doing a an independent film, a low budget film, and I sent a check. But that is kind of like sending a check to a friend and in a way that preserves his dignity, right? That's well put. But I would like to add that he has no dignity. (laughs) (laughs) And you're his only friend. But, for instance, I read um, Talking Points Memo every day. So it's just one of those sites I check into every day. It's a great site. So uh, I guess a pop-up screen the other day, it says, you have read 100 pieces on Talking Points Memo. Isn't it time to contribute? And I was like, yeah, it is. And I contributed. And I thought, that's a really nice method. I thought, we might even do something like that. We, and, yeah. and you're reminding me, I've done more. I, I, I've actually sent money to Wikipedia. The guy who founded Wikipedia is an epic internet whiner. He's an incredible whiner on the internet Excuse about me, we money. don't, can you use another and, word besides whiner? What would you say, Jerry, what's the word that I want to use, because I can't use, I've been banned from using whiner. He fetches a lot on Fetcher. the internet about, about how horrible his position is as the guy who founded Wikipedia. And I thought, you know what, I use Wikipedia many times a week, and I'm going to send this guy a check. And I've done a half dozen Kickstarters of various kinds, and some of them are friends. Most of them are people that I know. And Kickstarter says that, in fact, the way it works is through circles of friends. And, right. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get friends of friends. And if you're really lucky, you get friends of friends of friends. Unless you're a rock band where you have a fan base that's interested in your next album. McSweeney's is doing a very smart job of their Kickstarter, I think, which is that they're offering premiums. You get a premium for each different level. You can have a Skype conversation with one of their authors. You can have a you know signed copies of, of a particular book. They've got hundreds of different premiums on there, and so it's a, a, almost a form of discount shopping, or anti-discount shopping. You're paying a little bit more than you would otherwise. No, it's, you can go shopping and actually feel good about yourself. Yeah, which exactly. Is when you get home, the phenomenon that I find really surprising though is there are people who send money to strangers. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the come on is go to our site. Here are the cool projects. Which yep. ones do you like? Oh, some exactly. some kid in Louisiana is making a cut-rate horror film, and it sounds really cool. And I'll send them fifty bucks. And that that kind of thing I find astonishing. People do that actually. Send, people do do that. The, the sending of money to complete strangers. I'm not sure I get the psychology 
of that. Yeah, maybe psychologically it, it works in that it makes you feel like a Medici or something. Maybe. It I makes think you feel like you're influencing your culture. Well, you are too, right? I mean, yeah, and, yeah, and that's a lot true. Of, and a lot of films that uh, that are funded that way, the small films that are funded that way, uh, give you a producer credit at the end, right? But, no, that's so, true. So that's, and that's an exciting uh, thing for a lot of people. Sure, no, that fun. makes sense, I guess. Yeah, and, and why not be part of the culture it's instead actually, of watching it? No, it's actually kind of a great development because anybody who has any idea can go out there and uh, possibly arrange the financing of it, really, because certain forms, you know, film in particular, publishing, require a certain amount of outlay to get into. And if you can get people all head up about it, so much more power to you. Is there Kickstarter fatigue? Like, oh, my God, it's another Kickstarter campaign. I can't even. I'm sure there there would be. I mean, there's always charitable giving fatigue. Mm-hmm. That's a problem that every every uh, nonprofit faces. Well, w- with the ubiquity of Kickstarter at this point, I think of yeah there's kickstarter fatigue but my friend john adorney who finances the each one of his next albums on kickstarter i'm very happy to give him money it has nothing to do with whether i'm going to give money to another kickstarter campaign kickstarter itself is just a aggregator of these needs i don't see kickstarter fatigue in particular tell me something in the future will we walk past a homeless guy holding a cardboard (laughs) sign that says go to my kickstarter site (laughs) no Because homeless people don't have computers, Seth. But Tom, there are public libraries (laughs) that our tax dollars pay for, and they do. Yeah. I still say no. We're not going to say that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books on KPFK 90.7 FM. Our friend Megan Dom is here to answer the question, what have you been reading lately? I am reading, or I have recently finished reading, a new memoir by Bernard Cooper. It's called My Avant-Garde Education. And I thought this would be appropriate to talk about here because he is a Los Angeles... He certainly is. ...based author, a Los Angeles figure. And this is a memoir about, among other things... Going to school at CalArts, right, Uh when it opened in the early 70s. And so it's this wonderful history of that institution and also an entire genre of art. And so he tells the story of his own life through pop art and avant-garde art. And I thought that was a really clever way of going about it. And does that mean that he's naked through most of the book? That's what I remember. (laughs) Except he could be. I mean, all, you know, all authors might as well be naked. I don't know much about Bernard Cooper. Give us a little background about Bernard Cooper. (laughs) He's a great guy. He... Is he a friend of yours? Yeah. So you're plugging, so you're plugging a friend's book. I am plugging a friend's book. And I'll be totally honest. I I blurbed this book. I blurbed this book. I'm not going to read my blurb here because I'm speaking extemporaneously. Um, But even, if I hadn't blurbed this book, I, I would be talking to you about it. I would like you to read that blurb, maybe. Really? Yeah. Okay. In my avant-garde education, Bernard Cooper delivers a kind of magic. He works in a mode that is so subtle, so ingenious, so deeply rooted in the visceral that it almost defies verbal description. By asking, what is art? Cooper is really asking, what is life? And though he gives us no easy answers, he explores these questions with such insight, humor, and generosity of spirit that we come away not only educated, but genuinely enlightened. Now, that's a hell of a blurb. That's a great blurb. I I charge $500 (laughs) for the blurb. blurb, Okay, great. great. I've I've invoiced him. uh, Do you have a card? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, How much of that is hyperbole? 
None. I, okay. I, I, I realize that it's a blurb and we're supposed to be hyperbolic. But in this case, I just I think this is a beautiful, subtle, hilarious book. And one of the things. Part so of, it's a real change. Part for of the. <laughs> no, Bernard. <laughs> well, Bernard is is probably most famous for the bill from my father, right. which started off as a This American Life segment. It's the story of his father. Maybe all parents fantasize about this, actually handing him a bill for every single thing, an itemized bill, every single expense that he incurred as a child. I remember when up. that happened. That yeah. caused a lot of media uh, chatter. Yeah, really. yeah. And it's a wonderful book. And he's, you know, sort of developed a cult following around that. But he's an author of a lot of books and, and he writes a lot about art and he actually is an artist himself. But I think this book is really, it's special even for him because it's does so many things at once and it's not a terribly long book um, but it it covers a huge amount of ground and he had, he had already published several memoirs and novels both I think at that point by the time he had written the bill for my father he was mm-hmm. he was already a very well-known writer yeah but um, in a in a niche you know indie right. sort of way yeah yeah and so as he's talking about Cal Arts, he's also talking about his own coming of age. He's talking about his own sexual education. Yeah, I, you know, he's a guy who grew up in here in Los Angeles. His father was a lawyer, um, you know, pretty conservative family. And he uses the experience of discovering this this kind of art and being in Los Angeles and being at CalArts at this particular time. He uses that as a way of talking about his own sexuality and his own identity and just sort of place in the world and place in the culture. And he, he weaves it all through just so seamlessly. I mean, that that's what really struck me about it. It was like such incredible skill. He's, he's an incredibly gifted writer anyway, but this is a book that combines his gifts with real skill. And the title again is? My Avant-Garde Education. By Bernard Cooper. Our friend Tom Teicholz is joining us today. For 10 years, Tom has written the Tommy Wood column that has appeared in the L.A. Jewish Journal, and he has recently published a collection of those columns. He's here to talk about it today, and this was financed by an Indiegogo campaign. The difference between Indiegogo and Kickstarter is Kickstarter's all or nothing. If you don't meet your goal, Mm -hmm. uh, you get no money and they return everything to the contributors. On Indiegogo, you can keep whatever you earn, but they charge you 9% if you don't reach your goal and only 4% if you do. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And Kickstarter charges you 0%? No, they have a percentage. Closer to the 4%. Right, Mm right, right, right. right. Now, Tommy Wood, an interesting title for the both the uh, Tom's yeah. mad at you because he, he wanted to use that title well there's actually, is there is it copyrighted that's what I'm asking <laughs> it is use uh protected but Tommy Wood literally means I mean Tyholtz literally means pond wood in German and that's why the press my press is pond wood press uh-huh. because of that but my father for 37 years had a business partner whose name was Wallach which means hole in the wall and their company was called Woodhole. So Tommy Wood is both a play on Hollywood, but also a tribute to my father and his company. It's got nothing to do with erections at all. Uh, I hope for my readers it has lots to do with it. <laughs> we always go for the cheap joke here yeah. on the LARB Radio Hour. So the book contains pieces on everybody from Jill Sobule, our friend Jill, to Roman Polanski, Budapest in L.A., uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, the cemeteries of L.A., the 
music producer Don was. It's remarkably eclectic. There's uh, a lot of interest in these topics, and yet you chose to go, after publishing two previous books with major publishers, you chose to go the self-publishing route. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I wasn't finding a lot of interest in publishing traditional publishing circles, which are very New York-oriented, for either a collection of columns or a collection of columns that had a lot to do with L.A. And local L.A. publishers were not very enthusiastic. At the same time, I felt that for the last decade, I've been sending out my columns and posting them and sending them to readers, and I could probably reach my readers just as well or better than any publisher. And in the event that I actually did well with these collections, then I could go to a traditional publisher and say, I have this audience. Mm -hmm. How does this kind of self-publishing work technically? Are you printing on demand? Walk us through that. First of all, you know, there's one can set it up for ebook on Kindle, Nook, iBook. And so that, you know, is direct downloads, no delay, good profit margin for writers, a lower price for readers. Um, It's a very efficient model. Paperback, you can do print on demand. And I set my company in these books through Ingram, which is the distributor of most publishers. Right. And they have their own self-publishing unit called Ingram Spark. And just as a side note, I do here and there some private commission or ghostwriting or for families. And increasingly, I say to them, listen, you don't have to you know, go around and try and find a publisher. You can publish this and have the satisfaction of putting a copy on every seat at a charity dinner or sending it to the 20 libraries you care about. And that's going to be just as gratifying and satisfying, in fact, perhaps more so an experience, than trying to do so with a traditional publisher. In some ways, because publishers now expect their authors to do so much promotion anyway, right? You have to have your Twitter account going, you have to do your Facebooking, you have to do your, you're responsible for a lot of your own marketing, even if you're with one of the biggest publishers. So in a a sense, is it the same thing when you're an independent publisher? Well, look, the traditional publishers still have the advantage when it comes to marketing, even though it doesn't feel that way when you're being published by them. But because they do the books in advance and Mm -hmm. they can spend six months alerting booksellers and publicity outlets that this book is coming, that's no question that's an advantage. That being said, I think that there are opportunities. And again, you have to set a bar that you're comfortable with. I think one's expectations in publishing in general, commercial publishing, you've got to be realistic about them. So my expectations are, if I can get a good deal of my audience in the Jewish Journal and in other publications to buy my book, terrific. If I can expand that incrementally on Amazon and increase sales that way, it would be meaningful because then, as you said, that audience creates value for my quote-unquote brand, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're now all supposedly each of us in the brand business, right? right? (laughs) You know, and my leverage with New York publishers increases Mm -hmm. the more I can say, Here's what I bring to the party. Right. I do think that the biggest difference is the fact that the big publishers have sales reps going around to bookstores. And the books that they push, they um, have a real leg up. Though when it's your book, you you wonder if that's what they're doing, right? I I think all of us have had that experience of saying, really, somebody's out there pushing my book because it doesn't look that way. But, you know, certainly it was scary and I procrastinated and it took me a while to get it together. 
But now I can say, I'm really glad I did it. Oh, that's an interesting thing. One of the things that publishers do is give you a deadline, (laughs) right? (laughs) That uh, always helps me. You're listening to Reader Supported, LARB (laughs) (laughs) Use that one, Jerry. (laughs) Now, uh, do you think that there's any chance that by saying, as you do in your introduction, that L.A. is the greatest Jewish city in the world. That had any impact on New York publishing circles when you... I think New York publishing circles are getting the message. I mean, I, I think, you know, there was this article about a week ago in the L.A. Times saying how L.A.'s become this creative... In the uh, New York Times, yeah. Everyone in the New York publishing world reads the New York Times. Mm-hmm. They're going to start thinking. If they're not thinking, then their associates and younger executives are saying... There's something going on in L.A. I got to check it out. And what did you think about the kind of local backlash against that piece, which said that, uh, you know, oh, dear God, this is another New York Times piece that has just no idea what is going on in L.A. They write about it as if it's this magical land with unicorns that they have never even visited. Like they write about it with no real knowledge of the place. Did you feel that way about the piece? or You know what? I think one has to be grateful for whatever publicity <laughs> one gets yeah, and, and not look a gift horse in the I mouth. I think that's accurate. You know, that being said, I mean, I think we've all witnessed in the last decade every major national newspaper cutting back their international reporting as well as their domestic and local reporting. So one of the advantages that I found writing for the Jewish Journal is that when I call up a cultural institution they're really glad to hear from me. Yeah, right. Because right. if I don't cover them, you know, maybe the LA Times will. Certainly, where else? Yeah, uh, um, which is, you know, one reason for our success as well at LARB, right? We, right. We, uh, publishers are always very happy to hear from us. No, I think that's right. I think there's a real, you know, dearth of coverage for what is a very vibrant cultural city, and in many ways, I would say, the most vibrant cultural city in the United States right now. Yeah, now you do say it's the greatest African-American city in the world, the greatest Hispanic Hispanic city city in the world. The greatest (laughs) Korean-American city. How do you measure that it's the greatest Jewish city in the world? I mean, how do... Well, look, let's start in the most traditional way. We have a plenitude of incredible rabbis in this city, speaking in the sort of non-Orthodox world. I mean, and this is in no particular order, Rabbi Stephen Leder, Naomi Levy, Sharon Brous, Mordechai Finley... Um, David Wolpe. David Wolpe. Uh, the late Harold Schulzweitz was a giant. Also the late Leonard Bierman. And uh, those alone, I mean, it's probably more talent than anywhere else in any other major city. When you go to the arts or cultural institutions, I grew up in New York City. In New York City, the establishment was very um, wasp. It was a process And uh, in L.A., L.A. is very much a city where any person who really wants to be involved or engaged in the cultural life of the city can do so at a high level very easily, and they're very welcomed. So Let me ask you this. You say you moved here from New York about 19 years ago? Yep. Was it difficult? Was it easy? So so I have a couple of uh, lines that I've overused by now, but I like to say that L.A. is the only uh, in Santa Monica, where I live, the only suburb of New York I would live in, <laughs> and, and, and that I, it still works, and, yeah. and that and that I would much prefer L.A. or Santa Monica to uh, Westchester or Connecticut or New Jersey. 
uh, because of the great number of New Yorkers, the great number of great restaurants, great ethnic food, movies, uh, painters, artists. Um, I think L.A. is great. The funny thing about L.A. is that whereas in New York, people to make it in the establishment pretend to be wasps, uh, I think in L.A., to make it in the establishment, people pretend to be Jewish. <laughs> I know, I do. <laughs> well, they are not. I mean, I, I think if you find yourself on the bar mitzvah circuit, it is really shocking the people you will see standing up on the bima who you never imagined uh, had a connection, and they, and they do. I know the first time I saw Tom Lutz holding a Torah, I was shocked to learn. <laughs> and then that he, he dropped it. That he was not a member of the tribe. Uh, well, we're all three from the East Coast. And uh, I hear the word Connecticut and I get a little rash. You do. We all love L.A., but it definitely took me at least a couple of years to adjust and adapt. And we all love it and cherish it now, but I'm just wondering no, what was that? No, it's definitely two years. I say it takes two years. It takes two years to really admit that you're living here. I think for the first two years, you're saying, okay, this is kind of okay, fun, gee, maybe I'll try hiking this weekend. Um, <laughs> but it takes a while before you really feel like you're here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, the Jewish Journal is an L.A.-born magazine, right? It's, uh, it's newspaper. I mean, again, I don't, I, I don't know the complete history. Mm -hmm. I've been writing for them for a little over 10 years. I believe they're currently an independent. They're independent of any federation or temple, you know, affiliation or support. Mm -hmm. They have a board of directors, and I think they may be organized as a not-for-profit. And Jonathan Kirsch is their book review editor. Great, the great, great Jonathan Kirsch. And Rob Eshman is a great editor. Mm -hmm. And Susan Freudenheim, who was at the LA Times, is a great editor. And, um, you know, Marty Kaplan, Marty Kaplan right? Yeah. Right, writes a great column for them. And so they also, again, you know, once upon a time when there was the LA Herald Examiner and the Daily News and more newspapers, more magazines, uh, when the LA Weekly was a little uh, thicker per week yeah. than it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, When the LA Times was a little thicker than it was. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think you know, in many ways, for better and for worse, the Jewish Journal has become a, a beneficiary because there are many pieces in Tommy Wood that I am so grateful that I had a place to publish them. Mm -hmm. sure. You know, I wrote a piece about the day that the Yad Vashem database of victims of the Holocaust went online, and I suddenly discovered that I was a nephew to my father's brothers and sisters whom he never named. Mm -hmm. You know, there was nowhere else to write about it that I knew of mm -hmm. than the Jewish Journal. It, that was great that I had that outlet. And by the way, I mean, same thing about the Los Angeles Review of Books. There are articles being written now that, you know, where would they have been published? I mean, the piece that I wrote for you, yes, uh, right. uh, where I reviewed the Bettina Stangneth book about Eichmann uh, in Argentina, you know, a 4,000-word essay on Eichmann, I was really happy to have a place to to publish them. Well, we love Nazis at the LA Review of Books. And we well, then you'll be hearing a lot more from me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Tom Teicholtz. Thank you to Megan Dom. Thanks to our producer and moral compass, Jerry Gorin. We're grateful for the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books, 
Find us on 90.7 on the FM dial. Download us on iTunes. If you happen to be on iTunes, go and give us a rating. Five stars would be appreciated. We'll see you next week. Dreams are faded light.